The Roman Empress Eudokia had sworn an oath to her dying husband never to remarry. Yet her empire was on the verge of total collapse. On the eastern frontier, the Seljuk Turks under the Sultan Alp Arslan had completely reversed the empire's fortunes. Where once the border had been reinforced by client states loyal to the empire, they had nearly all flipped to the Seljuk side. Where once the Romans had a fortified frontier of wealthy cities, now the Seljuks raided the lands with impunity and pillaged city after city. As she put it to her advisor, Michael Pselos, our empire is withering and regressing. The army was simply not up to the task. Not only were they poorly supplied, but the lack of any investment or a military leader up to the task had left them utterly demoralized. They needed a figure with imperial legitimacy who could lead them in reinforcing the frontier and putting up some sort of a fight. So oath be damned. Eudokia had the patriarch annul the oath. But there was still one question left. Who was the man for the job? The man she ended up choosing might seem unconventional at first glance. Romanos Diogenes, the former Dukes of Serdica. Just months earlier, he'd been arrested for his part in a treasonous plot and sentenced to death. At his trial, though, he'd caught the Empress's eye, possibly in part due to his good looks. Diogenes was reportedly tall, muscled, and easy on the eyes. But he was also a capable military leader and committed to the Empire. His death sentence was commuted to exile, but he still must have been quite surprised when he was recalled in 1067 and told he would be marrying the Empress and becoming Emperor. For Diogenes, this must have seemed quite a reversal of fortunes. From disgraced exile to Emperor, all he had to do now was save the Empire. Welcome to History of the Uchmer, Episode 5. Help me, Romanos Diogenes, you're my only hope. This is the first of a two-parter that will take us to Manzikert, the triumphant victory of the Seljuk Turks over the Romans. In this first part, we'll be returning to Byzantium to witness the necrosis that sets in as the Macedonian dynasty agonizes on its deathbed, and the following ten years up to the elevation of the ill-fated Romanos Diogenes. As I mentioned in episode 3, Basil the Bulgar Slayer died in 1025, and after the loss of this absolutist, iron-fisted ruler, his brother Constantine took power and ruled for three years. Constantine had technically been emperor the whole time, but little brother was never given any actual responsibility. Once he was forced to sit on the throne alone, he turned out to be not exactly a good emperor, but not terrible either. He honestly didn't do enough to leave any sort of an impression. Because, well, yeah, he died just three years later. After he died, power passed to his two daughters, Zoe and Theodora. However, it was the elder sister, Zoe, who took the lead. The now empress, Zoe, consolidated her rule by marrying. In total, she would have three husband emperors of varying quality. To give you a bit of an outline of this series of unfortunate events, it's these husband emperors that will be running the ship from 1028 to 1055. Zoe herself will die in 1050, and when her last husband dies in 1055, 
Theodora will become the last Macedonian ruler. And when she dies just a year later, her chosen successor will last just a year himself before being overthrown and succeeded by a string of generals. Isaacios Komnenos, Constantine Dukas, and finally, Romanos Diogenes. Romanos will be at the head of the Byzantine army at Manzikert and have the infamy of being the first Roman emperor ever to be captured alive by an enemy since Valerian in the year 260. Now that we've got the big picture, let's get into the nitty-gritty of it. Three days before her father died, Zoe married an old aristocrat named Romanos Argyros. Her dad, Constantine, had set up the marriage and actually forced Argyros to divorce his previous wife. The wife had not been too keen on this plan, and it wasn't until her husband's life was threatened that she agreed to divorce Argyros by the only means socially acceptable, joining a convent. So to save her soon-to-be ex-husband's life, she signed herself up for the life of a nun, and the 60-year-old Argyros married the 50-year-old Zoe. Gotta love Byzantium. Argyros will be the first of the three husband emperors. He was not a soldier emperor, though. He was an aristocrat, and so he made a series of financial decisions that severely weakened the empire's finances. His lack of any sort of legitimacy in the eyes of an empire that had grown used to their warrior god Basil meant that Argyros would never quite live up to expectations, and so he needed to rely more and more on those pillars of wealth and honors we explored in episode 3. He funded all sorts of projects to gain popularity, and he even negotiated the restoration of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, after it had been destroyed by Al-Hakim. He cut a deal with the half-Melkite Fatimid princess Sid al-Mulk, who was handling affairs for the new caliph, Al-Hakim's son, Al-Zahir. Even though he coordinated the deal, Romanos didn't actually pony up the cash to get the job done, so it would go unfinished for a while. This lack of liquidity was mostly because, after initially letting the gold flow, the quickly drained royal coffers forced Argyros to get a bit more tight-fisted. And as he started to become a bit more demanding with the taxes, his popularity absolutely tanked. And just six years after coming to power, the poor guy ended up dying of a mysterious illness. First, his hair started to fall out, and then he mysteriously drowned in the bath. And, rumor has it, it was the Empress Zoe herself who had him killed and replaced with her boy toy lover, Michael. The very day of his death, she bribed the Patriarch of Constantinople to officiate her new marriage and to have her longtime lover proclaimed Emperor. So yeah, maybe it wasn't murder, maybe Argyros died of natural causes, but quid bono and all that. Boy toy Emperor Michael IV was quite a looker, but not exactly from the elite class. He was a money changer, and although he'd been Zoe's pet before the... <clears throat> unfortunate demise of Romanos, he had apparently, for some reason, learned not to trust Zoe. So he did his best to keep her away from power. Like Romanos, Michael IV was also not a soldier, and though he tried, the empire's military began to suffer from the recent years of mismanagement. It was under his rule that the bungled attempted takeover of Sicily happened. If you recall, in episode 2, I mentioned politics in Byzantium being the reason things went south. Well, Michael IV is the politics. See, the invasion of Muslim Sicily was being led by Georgios Maniakes, an extremely capable Roman general who'd already overseen the capture of Edessa in Syria. 
He was more than capable of standing up to intimidating mercenaries like the Varangian future king of Norway, Harald Hardrada, and the Norman, William Ironarm of Hauteville. Under Maniakis, things seemed to be going quite well. But to Michael IV's size, Maniakis started to look less like a capable general and more like a threat. Maniakis had the military legitimacy Michael himself lacked. If he did succeed in taking Sicily, who's to say he wouldn't just hold on to it for himself, or even worse, make a bid for the role of emperor? And so not only was Maniakis recalled, which caused the Sicilian offensive to completely dissolve, but he was brought back in chains, and the empire lost one of its most capable generals. I'm sure they won't be needing any capable generals anytime soon, though. Anyway, unfortunately for him, despite his good looks, Michael IV suffered from poor health. He was epileptic, and despite being in his youth, he also died just six years after having slept and allegedly murdered his way to the top. When he died, he chose not to give power back to Zoe. Instead, he had his nephew, Michael V. You see what I mean about these names? Anyway, he had his nephew, Michael V, named Emperor. This new nephew, Michael, tried to rip the band-aid off and depose both Zoe and her sister, Theodora. But the people weren't having it. They could still remember the glory days of Basil, and they weren't going to let go of their precious Macedonians just yet. So, just a year later, after a popular revolt, Michael V ended up arrested and blinded. Supposedly, he who done the deed was none other than the famous Varangian mercenary and future king of Norway slash failed candidate for a king of England, Harald Hardrada, who unfortunately leaves our story at this time to embark upon the series of events that will lead him to die in England. Bye, Harry. After nephew Michael V got his eyes plucked out, Zoe was back in power. But when she'd been brought back, her younger sister Theodora had been brought back with her and named co-empress. So, to give herself more legitimacy over baby sister, she married for a third time. This time, she married Constantine Monomachos. Monomachos was also cute like Michael IV, but he and Zoe actually got along, and he turned out to be a, if not amazing, at least pretty decent, husband emperor. Third time's a charm. He kept the empire more or less together as it struggled to stay afloat. And to be honest, under better circumstances, he might have been a great emperor. His reign lasted a bit longer than most during this era of chaos, from 1042 to 1055. So let's take a look at some of the developments. This was a very transformative time for the empire, and a lot of the decisions taken now will impact future foreign policy and the relationship between the Romans and the Utremer states. So instead of going chronologically, we'll first deal with internal politics, and then with foreign threats. Monomachos had some losses on both fronts, but he also saw some successes. First on his list of successes was handling the transition of the final piece of Armenia, the kingdom of Ani, into the empire. The deal for Ani had been cut decades earlier by Basil II, and had stipulated that upon the death of the king, it would pass into Roman hands. Monomachos made sure the deal actually went through. Now all of Armenia was under Roman control. It wouldn't stay that way for long, but still. He was also able to fend off two rebellions. The first was led by none other than the general, Georgios Maniakis. After Michael IV had died, Michael V had had Maniakis reinstated and sent back to Italy, this time to deal with the Normans who had once fought for him as mercenaries. 
Now, Monomajos was once again trying to replace Maniakis with someone else, but Maniakis was done with taking orders, getting fired, and thrown into prison. He declared himself in revolt, and with an army at his back, he made straight for Constantinople, only to end up dying from an arrow wound. So, there ends the tale of Georgios Maniakis. And later on in his career, Monomajos also had to deal with the rebellion of a certain Leon Tornikios, who was Monomajos' second cousin and a military officer. Tornikios led a revolt of the Central Army Forces, known as the Tagmata, all the way to the gates of Constantinople, where his army proclaimed him as emperor. This was the crunch moment. Sure, Tornikios was probably not going to be able to break through the walls, but if the city was truly fed up with Monomajos, they would find a way to let him in. Yet, it didn't happen, and Monomajos was able to bring other forces back to crush Tornikios' army. On Christmas Day, Tornikios was captured and brought before Monomajos, who had him blinded on the spot. Tis the season to be sightless. Okay, that was a really bad joke. Anyway, I want to remind you of the power the people had over the emperor in Constantinople. If you recall from episode 3, they had accepted Dimiskis replacing Nikephoros, because no one liked Nikephoros. And they removed Michael V from power because he had tried to do away with the Macedonians. But when it came time to throw Monomajos out, they just didn't feel like it. It seems like Monomajos was doing a decent job at cultivating popularity. Though not a perfect job. Despite being friendly with Zoe, their arrangement was a bit more um, business than pleasure, and both of them had affairs. When Monomajos made the mistake of appearing in public with his mistress, the people nearly tore his head off, thinking he was trying to get rid of their precious Macedonian empresses and replace them with some floozy. Zoe and Theodora had to appear in person to calm the crowd. But still, Monomajos seems to have been relatively well-liked, at least preferable to some meathead general like Maniakis or Tornikios. Part of Monomajos' public relations strategy was to pour lots of money into the arts. This was later used to criticize him as a money waster who blew all the empire's hard-earned cash on vanity projects like churches. Yet, not only was this a logical way to gain popularity in the capital, but the effects of Monomajos' dedication to culture were long-lasting. Monomajos, for example, finally got the ball rolling on the reconstruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Argyros had set up the deal, but Monomajos actually made good on it. The glorious church the Crusaders will arrive at in a few decades was funded by Monomajos. And he also invested a lot into funding intellectual thought in the empire. He was the one who promoted Michael Pselos, the writer who wrote about those twin pillars of wealth and honors and who's providing a lot of the information for this podcast. Monomajos certainly relied on those pillars and developed a much more robust system of state-funded schools and intellectuals. By hiring folks like Pselos, who developed a complex set of writings that mixed Christian theology with classical Greek philosophy, as well as by establishing schools and meritocratic structures that would nourish future great minds, Monomajos laid a foundation that would shape generations of Byzantine intellectualism. The trajectory of the empire is mostly downwards from now, until its final demise in the 15th century. But the most vibrant period of Byzantine art and literature coincides with this downfall. And when the empire finally dies in 1453, this culture will be exported by Roman refugees to Europe, providing a lot of the spark for the European Renaissance and the beginning of the modern era. The Roman streams of thought developed by writers like Michael Pselos would form the foundation of Byzantine humanism, 
which would later feed into Renaissance humanism and shape both modern philosophy as well as political theory. But that's all way beyond our scope. For Monomajos, funding these projects accomplished two things. Firstly, it allowed him to project soft power both internally and externally. A bit like a pufferfish blowing itself up to seem bigger than it actually is. And secondly, it's worth noting that people like Celos were from the middle class. Monomajos was much more meritocratic than his predecessors. And instead of buying honors like the aristocrats had been doing, many merchants and artisans earned their honors for their loyalty and hard work. A veritable upper middle class began to form under Monomajos, one that was loyal to him. Turning now from domestic to foreign policy, Monomajos also had to deal with outside challengers to his rule. He successfully fended off an attack by the Kievan Rus by burning their fleet down with that good old Greek fire, but he was unable to stop the Normans from taking huge chunks of southern Italy, and it was under his rule that the Great Schism occurred. We saw this event play out from the perspective of the Pope in episode 2, and if you recall, the issue there was the papal reform movement, which sought to put more power directly in the hands of the Pope and couldn't accept any challengers to papal primacy. The Romans also had their set of religious pressures. The incorporation of non-Chalcedonian Christians, like the Syrian Jacobites and many of the Armenians, had led to controversy. It had blown up in Nikephoros' face, for example, when he made a deal with the Jacobites to settle them inside the empire, and then had to turn around and persecute them anyway, just to keep the Orthodox Church happy. So, with all of these other Christians hanging around, the Byzantine Orthodox Church also felt a need to establish its primacy. Even our historian friend, Michael Pselos, was caught up in some controversy surrounding his love for pagan philosophers like Plato, and his, perhaps less than wholehearted, Christian beliefs. Byzantine church officials were cracking down on anything and everything that wasn't orthodox, and this included the less than orthodox practices of Latin Christians, at least from their perspective. Which could explain the letter sent by a Byzantine archbishop complaining about Western practices, which, if you recall, was what so upset the papal legates in the first place. So the challenge from the eager-to-assert-their-power papal legates came at just the moment when the Byzantines couldn't afford to lose any ground. Well, not that any moment would have been a good one for the Romans to accept papal supremacy. The Byzantines downplay the schism, but as I mentioned when we dealt with it from the Catholic side of things, it was a sign of the decaying relationship between Byzantium and the Latin West. Apart from the Rus and the Normans, Monomachos also had to deal with two other groups of invaders, both with origins in the Eurasian steppe. The first were the Pechenegs, a group of steppe nomads who had been displaced by conflict to the north of Byzantium, caused by the dissolution of the Khazar Khaganate. We met the Khazars last time, when the Rus and the Oghuz Turks were teaming up to take them down. Now that the Khazars were beaten, the land around the Black Sea became a tad bit chaotic, and a Turkic group known as the Pechenegs started to feel the heat rising. So they moved south in search of greener pastures. Uh, literally, they were looking for somewhere where they could feed their sheep. Step nomads. And so, the Pechenegs began invading into Roman lands in the Balkans, but Monomachos was able to cut a deal and settle the Pechenegs inside the empire, where he could keep them at hand in case he needed to bolster his military forces. This move, though it seemed smart at the time, would end up blowing up in the empire's face. And as for the second group, well, there are old friends, the Seljuk Turks. In the late 1040s, Seljuk forces began to make raids in the region of Armenia. The biggest raid of this period was led by none other than Ibrahim Yino, cousin to Tugro, who will end up strangled by the Sultan about a decade later. 
Monomajos coordinated a response force to Ibrahim's raid. But because he was simultaneously trying to keep Leon Tornikios at bay, he had to reinforce the Byzantine forces with those of a neighboring Georgian king, an ally, Liparit IV. This combined Byzantine and Georgian force was able to force the Seljuks to retreat. Even so, Ibrahim was not only able to escape, but he captured the Georgian ruler Liparit, though Tugurl later had the Georgian released unharmed. The Seljuks were very gracious with captured rulers. That's foreshadowing, by the way. Anyway, Monomachos clearly recognized the threat the Seljuks posed. He declined to pay tribute to the Sultan Tugrul, but he did allow Tugrul to sponsor the restoration of the mosque in Constantinople, and he had the Friday prayers changed to honor the Seljuk Sultan instead of the Fatimid Caliph. If you recall, the prayers had honored the Fatimids since 1027. This announcement was made somewhat awkward by the fact that a Fatimid envoy was in the city at the time and it caused a minor kerfuffle in Byzantine-Fatimid relations. The two had been getting quite buddy-buddy before the Seljuks arrived. Well, as buddy-buddy as a Christian Roman Empire and a Shia-Muslim-Fatimid caliphate could get. Either way, stroking Tugrul's ego wasn't going to be enough to save the Roman skin. Remember that the Sultan only had a tenuous grip on his Turkmen followers, and the Sultan's cousins, Ibrahim, as well as Kutlumush and his Irakia followers, were soon taking advantage of defenseless Armenian lands, using the plateaus for their sheep to graze on, and raiding the underprotected Armenian cities and towns. Many of the Muslim emirs that had been made Roman clients also began to switch allegiance to the new regional superpower, and they also started to raid the Romans. What's worse, the Roman army was badly crippled from losses during the civil war with Leontornikios, and so, to deal with these eastern threats, Monomachos needed more muscle. Fortunately, he had just made that alliance with the Pechenegs, remember? Unfortunately, he was about to completely bungle their deployment in the east. Monomachos had the Pechenegs he'd brought into the empire armed and set to the eastern border. And then, in a very confusing series of events that have not been very well recorded and which we're not going to dwell on, he somehow pissed them off and sent them into a revolt. The chain of events which led to the Pechenegs going from useful allies to bitter enemies already within the empire's borders is not very well understood. What is clear is that the Pechenegs wars could not have come at a worse time. Remember, the whole point of using the Pechenegs was because the Roman army was weakened from the civil war, so in the first few battles with the Pechenegs, these weakened Romans were absolutely slaughtered. This is when we start to see a lot of western mercenaries enter service in Roman forces. A lot of them are actually Normans, like Hervé Francopoulos, whose last name, Francopoulos, just means son of a Frank, and who had been one of the Normans participating in the failed invasion of Sicily way back when. These ties between the Empire and Latin Christian mercenaries will form a key part of the alliance during the First Crusade, and influence the relationship between Romans and Utremer afterwards. Eventually, the Pechenegs grew tired of war. The Romans didn't beat them or anything, but they kept sending armies out to fight the Pechenegs, and after a few years of roaming Byzantium with impunity, they had plundered as much as they'd wanted to, and they knew that they could sue for peace and get a good chunk of gold and concessions from the Romans. So that's what they did. The Romans and the Pechenegs signed a 30-year peace, and the Pechenegs were allowed to move back to the Balkans, where they would remain, nominally at peace with the Empire, but now armed, not only with weapons, but with the knowledge that the Romans could do nothing to stop them, if they decided to go plundering again. While the Romans were busy with the Pechenegs, Turkmen raids continued. The Sultan himself, however, 
was mostly concerned with subjugating the Muslim rulers on the edges of the empire. Most of the smaller states had been turned into clients by the Byzantines a century earlier during the Macedonian Renaissance, providing a buffer between them and any would-be invaders. Tugrel was systematically flipping these rulers to his side. And one key element in bringing them around was to present himself as a defender of Islam and a warrior of jihad against the infidel Romans. And so, by 1054, a year after the end of the Pechenet Wars, Tugrel himself was back inside the empire. And this time, he was looking to conquer. One of the cities on his list was none other than Mansikert. Despite having brought siege engines with him, Tugrel failed to take the city. As a consolation prize, he was able to raid the area as he pleased. Though he was unable to take the city, the Romans were equally unable to kick him out. And the next time the residents of Manzikert find themselves surrounded by a Seljuk army, they won't be so lucky. By 1055, Monomachos knew his days were numbered. His health was failing him, and so he named a successor. In 1050, the Empress Zoe had died, leaving only Monomachos as a widower emperor and Theodora as co-empress. Unfortunately, for Monomachos' successor at least, Theodora outlived the emperor. So when Romanos Monomachos died in January of 1055 after ruling the empire for 13 years, Theodora had the would-be successor arrested. The reign of Monomachos has been heavily criticized by both contemporaries and later historians. And sure, it was a mess, but the empire was facing incredible challenges, and to his credit, Monomachos got them through it. During his 13 years of rule, he faced three fearsome foes. The Normans and the Seljuks in particular represented entirely new types of threats, and the empire was not at all prepared to deal with them. And while it's possible that he kind of created the Pechenek problem, he was eventually able to solve it. He also put down two armed insurrections. And I kind of glossed over it, but the guy also dealt with dozens of attempted palace coups. The Roman military was clearly not in the best shape. But I don't know how much we can blame Monomachos for that. The empire's forces were stretched very thin. And the thing about a civil war is that all the casualties are Roman casualties. One aspect that definitely did suffer under his rule was the economy. But it's no surprise. Whether it was the best investment or not, his funding of social projects cost a lot of money. And the Pechenegg Wars saw the empire shell out a ton of cash to pay for foreign mercenaries. So by the end of it all, the empire's bank account was looking a bit anemic. And this was the empire the last Macedonian ruler inherited. But she wouldn't have much of a chance to do anything. Theodora died just a year later, in 1056, at the age of 75 or 76. And that was the end of the Macedonians. They had been the longest-running dynasty the Roman Empire had ever known. The next 15 years will see a few non-dynastic rulers try to patch the empire back up, and one short-lived attempt at a new dynasty, before Alexios Komnenos comes to power. Throughout this period of instability, things will get even worse for the empire, culminating in one of the worst defeats in Roman history, the Battle of Manzikert. Before dying, Theodora named Michael Bringas to be her successor. Bringas was an elderly aristocrat who, to avoid confusion with an ancestor of his, went by the moniker Michael the Younger. The irony of this title, coupled with his advanced age, led the Romans to give him the unofficial nickname Old Man. The Old Man's rule started off with a bang. A cousin of Monomachos, a guy named Theodosius. Don't worry about remembering that name. Well, he seemed to think the time was right for a popular uprising. Unfortunately, his effort lacked both popularity and uprising. 
His march to the Hagia Sophia, where the people would proclaim him as emperor, ended pitifully, with just him and his son sitting alone on the steps, waiting to be arrested, which they were. And in other news, the Norman mercenary, Hervé Francopoulos, also went rogue after being denied a promotion. He defected to the Turkish side and assisted a band of Turkmen in raiding the empire. But this turned out to be a bad call for Francopoulos, because he soon fell out with the Turkmen and ended up in prison by his new pals. This won't be the last Frankish mercenary to betray the empire, though. Speaking of being denied promotions, when a group of officers came to the capital expecting the payment and honors usually doled out by a new emperor, the old man was apparently feeling a bit stingy, because they all got nothing. These military men were all from prominent families that had risen to glory fighting under Basil. They were proud men from proud families, and they were tired of being sidelined by weak old aristocrats. Now that the Macedonians were truly gone, who gave this bring-ass the right to rule? No one. Shouldn't we be in charge instead? Yeah. So vive la révolution. As our historian pal, Michael Pselos, puts it, For a long time, the soldiers had found the situation of the state to be intolerable, because the emperor was always chosen from among the other side, I mean the civil servants. Even when a decision was to be made concerning the head of the army or the commander of a unit, leadership was entrusted to men inexperienced in war. Those who lived inside the cities received greater offices than those who endured the hardships of war. When the need arose for some to conduct hard battles and resist adverse fortunes, those who lived in Constantinople could sit back and relax as if in a great castle, while those who lived far away from the city in the countryside suffered terribly. For these reasons, they were ready to protest against the situation in a most violent manner, and they lacked only a spark to set off their explosion. And then it happened. No one asked them their advice concerning the appointment of the new emperor, and they were held in contempt. Silas is pretty good at explaining the politics of the thing. So, these generals got to plotting, and just a year after being proclaimed emperor, Bringas was eventually pushed out. In his place, the generals elevated one Isakios Komnenos, uncle to the eventual emperor slash at this time still a child, Alexios Komnenos. Of course, the conflict to Bringas had been bloody, and once again Byzantine forces were forced to cut each other down, weakening the army, both in terms of sheer numbers and morale. Nevertheless, it seemed like Isakios was the guy for the job. He was a tough son of a bitch, a real Clint Eastwood type, 50 years old and a hardened general. On his coins, he had himself portrayed holding a sword, a sign of where his power came from. Or some sort of compensation. Who knows? A couple years later, William the Conqueror, the Norman King of England, would model his own coins on those of Isakios in an attempt to communicate the same message. Sit down, shut up. There's a new sheriff around these parts. Isakios used the fact that his support came from the military to drastically reduce the cultural expenditures guide like Monomakos had put on the books. There was to be no church building under his rule. No siree. And he quickly became very unpopular with the people because of his harsh tax collecting. But again, unlike a Monomakos, Isakios had military support, so he could afford to be ruthless. And as for the military, Isakios saw some success there too. The eastern frontier was descending further into chaos, so the armies began to adopt guerrilla tactics, the same sort of tactics they had once used when they were the underdog, suffering attacks from the caliphate. Desperate times and all that. 
This seemed to put the various raiding parties to the east on notice, that the Empire was back on its toes, so to speak. And in the west, Izakios personally dealt with the Pechenegs once again. These were small advances, but they seemed to be steps in the right direction. And then, Izakios got sick. Really sick. Sensing that the end was near, he made an interesting decision. Instead of establishing the Komnenian dynasty, 21 years earlier than it would actually be established by his nephew, Izakios named one of his fellow rebel generals as successor, Konstantinos Dukas. Izakios went off to live his last few months of life at a monastery. He'd ruled the empire for two years, and in 1057, the job was passed to another Klinisuit type. Except, Dukas seemed to want to play against type. Instead of strengthening the military and pushing back against all these damned horsebound invaders, Dukas just kind of chilled. In total contrast to Izakios, Dukas' main aim seemed to be the establishment of a proper dynasty. He named two of his sons as successors and tried to return to Monomachus' strategy of buying loyalty. He also focused on his image in Constantinople. He personally saw to it that the meeting out of justice in the empire was fair and just, and was apparently a very pious guy. It all sounds perfectly normal, chill peacetime emperor stuff, except what about the Turks and the Normans and the Pechenegs? The house is on fire and this guy's polishing the silver instead of looking for a bucket of water. During the eight years of Dukas' rule from 1059 to 1067, basically nothing seems to have been done to curb the complete and total breakdown of imperial authority in the East or in the West. Our sources are very dry at this critical period, and we lack a clear picture of what exactly was going on. But by the end of the period, multiple large important cities in the East have been sacked and taken, and Robert Giscar is undoubtedly the master of Apulia and Calabria. Southern Italy can be excused. The Byzantines barely cared about it, and once the Pope allied with the Normans, it was going to require a large investment to get them off the peninsula. But as for the eastern territories in Armenia, it makes no sense. Some sources claim that because the Turkmen raids mostly affected non-Chalcedonian, Jacobite, and Armenian Christians, that's why Dukas didn't lift a finger. But surely he had to have known that the Turks weren't just going to stop there. That frontier was meant to be a border, a buffer zone, and Dukas let it crumble. After eight years of rule, Dukas died in 1067 of illness. And once again, in his last moments, he showed a preference for establishing his dynasty over the well-being of the empire. He left behind a wife and two sons. The oldest, Michael, was technically old enough to rule on his own, but everyone agreed that the boy lacked the temperament to do so. He was just a bit of a softy. Now, this was a predicament. We skimmed over it last time we were in Byzantium, but the way the white death of the Saracens, Nikephoros Phokas, had come to power was by marrying the widowed wife of the former emperor, and taking up a sort of stepdad role to the Macedonian junior emperor, Basil II. As his kids were also not ready to leave the empire, it's clear Dukas feared this scenario would repeat itself, and possibly spell the end of the Dukas dynasty. So before shuffling off this mortal coil, he had his wife swear an oath never to marry again. The oath itself is some wild shit. Dukas's wife, Eudokia, Swears on the sky, the earth, the trinity, this seraphim, that seraphim, this saint, that saint, a bunch of prophets and a bunch of martyrs and whatever else, and curses herself to be ripped apart, burned, and cast into the ocean if she should ever break her oath. In 1068, a year after the death of her late husband, 
She married Romanos Diogenes, and he became emperor. The situation had simply become untenable. Since the siege of Mansikert in 1054, Tugrel had avoided making another attempt at conquest. Instead, random Turkmen groups had made a killing, no pun intended, raiding throughout the eastern provinces. These groups were often led by Seljuk family members, like Ibrahim Yinal and Kutlumush. But Tugrel had died in 1063, and the new sultan, Albarslan, seemed to have different plans from those of his uncle. Just one year into his rule, he led a brutal sacking of the economic hub of Armenia, the city of Ani. And with various Turkmen groups now fully integrated into Muslim states on the borders of the empire, in Syria and Azerbaijan, the raids had continued to increase. It was easy to see a future in which the Turkmen extended their control into the eastern provinces, leaving the heart of the empire itself exposed. How long would it be before Albarslan's forces felt capable of taking on Constantinople itself? And so Romanos Diogenes was elevated to emperor, and within just a few months, he set out to put an end to the Turkish advance. However, his ultimate demise would not come at the hands of foreign forces, but thanks to the rest of the Dukas clan. When Constantinos Dukas had died, he'd left behind a brother, Ioannis Dukas, to more or less run the show. And now that his sister-in-law had brought a new guy into the mix, Ioannis and the rest of the Dukas clan were chomping at the bit to make sure any possible Diogenes dynasty never saw the light of day 